Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Numbers chapters 11 through 14 and 20 through 24. It's kind of unique. We, we get this book called Numbers, so this is one of those lessons you can really count on. So that was a dumb <laughs> joke to start, but here we go. What's happening is if you look at the bigger picture here, you have Genesis, then Exodus, and Leviticus, in the rearview mirror at this point, now for today's lesson we get Numbers. And then the last book of Moses that we'll talk about next time is Deuteronomy, which is the second telling of the law. This particular book covers roughly 40 years um, of the, the wanderings in the wilderness, so we call it Numbers because we are going to number the children of Israel at the beginning, in chapter 1, at the beginning of these 40 years, and then we're going to number them again at the end, right before we get the second telling of the law and the, the final teachings of Moses, and then they go into the Promised Land there. So that's kind of the overview of where we are in the story. And the Hebrew name for this book is called in the wilderness. So if you were reading this in Hebrew, you would know, oh, this is the wilderness wandering, right? The wilderness wandering is not in Genesis. Exodus is really about God getting the people out of Egypt. Leviticus is about let's get all the priestly temple things set up. And then it's this whole 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And then before they enter into the Holy Land, okay, let's remind people, here are God's covenantal expectations for how to have peace and prosperity in the land. So many of the stories that you're familiar with um, regarding the, the Israelites out in, in the wilderness are going to come in this one book, many of them. Now, you, you, we've already covered some of them in the book of Exodus before this. So the, the chapters that you are reading in the Come, Follow Me curriculum being 11 through 14, 20 through 24, we're going to focus a lot there but we also wanted to pick up a couple of items that fall outside of those chapters, just little quick hitting insights along the way. For instance, if you go back to chapter 2, uh, this is a fascinating chapter that most people would read it and think, um, there's not a lot here that, that would be relevant to us, because what it does is it sets up the camp of Israel, and you'll notice that the camp of Israel is set up on the cardinal directions of a compass, with the tabernacle being at the center of the camp. So they're, they're uh, encamped all around with the tabernacle being in that middle point. Hmm. I wonder if there's some symbolism there for us to have this beautiful imagery or this symbolism of the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the outer courtyard, this tabernacle, which is a temple-like uh, symbol for us, to have that be at the center of our life, that we put the Lord first and foremost and remember to love him and keep him in the middle, not out on the fringes. 
Now, one other insight that comes out from chapter 2 is, I don't know, perhaps, perhaps these are random assignments, but something something tells me that they weren't random, that there's a reason why different tribes were placed in different locations. You'll notice how it starts out in verse 3, on the east side, toward the rising of the sun, shall they of the standard of the camp of Judah pitch throughout their armies. So you have Judah over here on the east, and then, of course, he lists Zebulun and Issachar are also going to be on these because you have to have three, 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 and three to get your twelve tribes, and then the Levites are camped around the tabernacle in the middle. So you've got your thirteen tribes. Um, so Judah on the east, and then if you turn the page over, you'll notice in verse 18, on the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim according to their armies, and then next to Ephraim, you're going to get the, the two tribes of Manasseh and Benjamin. So it's fascinating to me to look at the potential symbolism. They mentioned at the rising of the sun, everybody's looking to the east, so you'll notice that in the Savior's ministry, most of the teaching and the healing, there are some exceptions, but most of it are for the house of Israel and specifically for the tribe of Judah and then he gives the instruction to take the gospel to the other scattered tribes of Israel and also to the whole world eventually. So in that dispensation, everybody's looking to the east, to Judah, to bring the light, the rising of the sun, to bring the light of the gospel and to reveal the, the um, glories of the Lord and the gospel. Then you'll notice in the west, is the tribe of Ephraim. Fascinating as we now get into the dispensation of the fullness of times, the, the final dispensation, the seventh, the latter days, when the sun is ready to set, now the gospel is given to Ephraim and Manasseh largely, and it's their job to now spread the light to all of the tribes of Israel and bring them all in and to all of the nations of the earth to bring them to the God who gives us life. Um, just some potential symbolisms to think about when you, when you read chapter 2. Another fun little thought, when you get to chapter 4, God gives them very specific instructions of how to move the tabernacle from place to place and what to do with the furnishings of the tabernacle. I love the symbolism here in verse 4 and 5 and 6. This shall be the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of the congregation about the most holy things. So I love the intro here that we're talking about that which is most holy. How do you treat it? What do you do with it when, when you're going to be moving the tabernacle? Look at verse 5. When the camp setteth forward, Aaron, who is the high priest, shall come and his sons, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. So you'll notice that the most sacred thing is the ark of the covenant. It's kept inside of the Holy of Holies and nobody gets to go in there except for the high priest. And when you're going to move this tabernacle, you have Aaron and his sons take down the veil and they cover the ark of the covenant first with a veil. 
Next, verse 6, they shall put thereon the covering of badger's skins, and shall spread over it a cloth, holy of blue, and shall put in the staves thereof. So you see that that which is most holy gets covered first with a veil, then with the skins, and then with cloth. It's this beautiful, to me, it's this beautiful symbolism of, of keeping that which is most holy, holy as you take it out and go um, moving the camp of Israel. Uh, to me, I've, I've seen a lot of lessons on, on subjects like modesty, but it was a, a dear friend and a colleague many years ago, Wayne Dimmock, up at the Institute in Logan who pointed this out to me that one of the most powerful lessons on modesty is contained here in these verses, rooted in scripture, not just a, a, a generic discussion about modesty, but to show how God instructed ancient Israel to handle those things which are most sacred and holy, covering, them for, covering the ark first with a veil, then with the skin, and then with this cloth, holy of blue, and blue being that beautiful symbol of, of that which is heavenly and that which is uh, eternal. And then the next chapter that we want to stop for just a moment on is chapter 9. It's here where Israel is commanded to keep the Passover again. It's been a year, apparently, since the original Passover back in Egypt from Exodus chapter 12, and the Lord commands them commemorate this this deliverance again. Yeah, he wants them to remember, which in English is an interesting word. So you've seen before that re means again, and you have this word member. You think about how we are members of God's kingdom. So we want to be put together again, individual units that are brought together again. God wants us to remember. He remembers, and it's often about covenants. It's a time for us to reenact uh, moments of salvation. So there's this ritual element of enacting what God had done to save the people. There's storytelling. And this is part of the reason why the scriptures are preserved, is it allows us to remember God's deeds of salvation for his people. And if we didn't take the time to remember, eventually we fall to pieces we dissipate out into the ether. So it's important that we take the time through actions, through stories, through sights, sounds, and food to come together to remember the great deeds that God has done for us. And it turns out that the Passover, celebrated for thousands of years by the Jews every year, when Jesus celebrated his last Passover, we call that the Last Supper. Christians now take that memorial, that remembering, and celebrate it every week at sacrament. Whereas members, we come together again with God every week to remember what God has done to save us from our own bondages, where he takes us into his wilderness, where we are fully dependent upon him and he saves us. So I just find this fascinating, this, 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 this concept of remembering. It's, a, it's an amazing thing that the God of the universe gives us that opportunity once a week. We don't have to wait once a year in, in a Christian context to come to the, to the sacrament table and celebrate the Lord's uh, sacrament, and 
become a member with him again. It's a new covenant every week. Sometimes we, we use the phrase, renew our baptismal covenants at the sacrament. Um, we've had many apostles tell us that that isn't a scriptural phrase. It's a nice concept and it's true, but it's, it's far from complete. There is a lot more going on at the sacrament than just renewing baptismal covenants. We're renewing all the covenants and we're making even new covenants with that ordinance every week as we become a member again of Christ's body. It's I, – I think – I could be wrong, but I think there's more power in that ordinance, in that sacrament than we sometimes or maybe most of the time give it credit for. Moving forward, now, you'll notice that the camp of Israel is is governed by God through this cloud or fire, cloud by day, fire by night. Isn't that neat? The imagery of a cloud shading you from the hot sun during the day and the fire warming you, lighting your path in the cold or the dark night. That is, that is what our covenants and what our connection with Christ should do, and it should guide us where we should go because when it's time to move, that cloud or that fire would lift and they would know it's time to take down the tabernacle, we're, we're on the move again, and it would move and they would follow it and then whenever it's set down, that's where they would set up the tabernacle. So I, I love these, these symbolic imageries that come to mind as you picture this actual camp of Israel and figuring out how that pillar of fire and that cloud of smoke is a part of our life today. If we're looking up, we're, we're seeking to hear him and seeking to follow his direction and go where he wants us to go, realizing that there are times when he gives us full agency and we have to figure out what we're going to do with, with what we have in our wilderness wanderings. And as we get ready now to go into chapter 11, I think it's important to point out that for some people on some occasions or, or during some periods of their life, they can't see the fire they can't see the smoke, they can't hear the voice very clearly speaking to them for a variety of reasons, and it's not always because of bad things you've done. Sometimes it's because of uh, external circumstances. Uh, a dear friend and colleague, Lincoln Blumel, shared a, a powerful analogy with me uh, recently. He said that when you're going through the wilderness, and you're trying to hold on to the iron rod on that covenant path or that straight and narrow path, he said there are two kinds of faith, and one of them is the kind of faith where you can see far off in the distance the goal. You can see the tree of life. It's there and you know there are ravines and, and twists and turns and mountains in between and valleys in between, but you can kind of see the goal and you press forward with faith on the covenant path. And then he said, but there are other times when you find yourself in a dark mist, in, in a situation of life where you can't see anything, you have no idea what's even one step in front of you, let alone where the end goal is, and you have to move forward on absolute sheer faith and trust in God alone, and sometimes that stretch stretches out longer than just a day or two or a week. Sometimes that can stretch out for months or years or decades. 
I, I love this analogy here of, of this wilderness wandering because it, it's motivating to me to say it doesn't matter whether I can see the end goal very clearly or whether I'm basking in the light of revelation and hearing his voice very clearly at a certain time or whether I can't hear anything or see anything, the answer is still press forward with faith, trusting that the Lord will bring us through this, this wilderness ex experience. In fact, we've talked about this before, but the root word for wilderness inside of the word wilderness is wild. It, it's wild. It's not tame. It means there are trials, and we're going to now walk with the children of Israel through trial, after temptation, after difficulty, after struggle, after wrestle, again and again and again. They can't, it's not tame. They can't rely on their own capacity, on their own learning, on their own power, or their own strength of arm to make things work out. And this is going to stretch out for 40 years for this people. And we've talked before that it could have been exactly to the day of 40 years, but 40 also is a symbol in the Bible of a long time. So we all suffer at times, and we could probably count the days when we suffer or we wander in our own wildernesses, and maybe it is 40 days, but whenever we're suffering, anybody I've ever talked to in my own suffering, it always feels like a long time. There's deep value here in the number story where we can learn from these people wandering for a long time, and we see they're very human. We see a lot of complaining, a lot of backbiting and murmuring, and God working again and again with them to say, look, I know this is hard. There's a reason I brought you out to the wilds. I want you to learn to fully trust me, which means he has to give them practice. He does a lot of forgiving, but in some cases he's like, well, okay, here's some blessings you're not going to get access to because you have been so persistently untrustworthy or untrusting. But all of us can learn to trust God that he's got this, that even though it might feel like we're a long time in the wilderness, he understands the whole path. He knows where we are, and he will always be with us, even if we don't necessarily feel it at that moment. Which, by the way, for some of you who, for yourself or family members, happen to be going through a very dark and dreary wilderness right now at this phase of your life, here's the question to consider. If you had a a button in front of you on a table that if you push that button, it would take away all of the struggle, all of the darkness, all of the uncertainty, all of your questions would be answered, all of the direction would be clear, all of the strength that you need would be given, um, everything would be cured, everybody would have 100% absolute faith. If you could push that button, would you? And many would say, yes, <laughs> show me the button, where is it? But in reality, if you cast your mind backward in time to other wilderness wanderings that you've experienced in the past, what difference would it have made if partway into that the struggle had been removed, it had been solved, everything had been taken away? Would you have become who you are today? And again, I think one of the messages for the Book of Numbers from, for us today is that life isn't about ease and comfort and pleasure and 100% success and 
nobody ever struggling, nobody ever suffering, nobody ever ever losing anything or dying. I think I think the real beauty of the these wilderness passages of scripture are the opportunities that they give us to acknowledge that God is with us in our afflictions, not just standing at the end of the road if we can just figure out how to get through the afflictions. And even though we may not feel him in those darkest parts of our struggles, his assurance is he is always there. He will never forsake us. So as we move forward into these stories in chapter uh, – starting in chapter 11 now, let's keep in mind that the God of heaven didn't send us down to this lone and dreary wilderness to, to walk those paths alone. And the people seemed to forget, verse 1, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. His anger was kindled. The fire of the Lord burnt among them. So we get all these fire references. But move down to verse 5. It's interesting. You get this essence of how they're in a wilderness that lacks water. We remember the fish we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. All of these things require quite a bit of water to produce. And so they're now in a wilderness that doesn't have a lot of water, and they're complaining and crying out to God, we really wish we could be back in Egypt. And God is trying to say, you won't find salvation in Egypt, it's only in me. So don't let the things of this earth distract you from the things of God. Now, it's not that God wants all of us to live permanently in a desert with uh, nothing of any value, but he's trying to teach these lessons. And he gets a little frustrated, it seems, when the people can't see his loving kindness to guide them and provide for them, all these complaints. And it just reminds me of the Book of Mormon. Laman and Lemuel seem to have not understood the scriptures very well. They seem to be reenacting the complaints of the Israelites, where they also, Lehi's party's out in the wilderness, and Laman and Lemuel are like these Israelites who just can't seem to trust that God has a plan. So they're they're making these petitions or pleas to Moses of, of we want more food than just the manna. And so look at verse 18. Say thou unto the people, Sanctify yourselves against tomorrow, and ye shall eat flesh. For ye have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Who shall give us flesh to eat? For it was well with us in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you flesh, and ye shall eat. The problem is, is they want flesh so badly, and it's the it's the focal point for them at this point. And it's fascinating to see how this um, this blessing is given to them. Look at verse thirty-one. There went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quails from the sea and let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side, and as it were a day's journey on the other side, round about the camp, and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth, as it were." That's a lot of quail. That's a lot of quail, a day's journey in any direction outside the camp, and they're giving you the two cubit um, distinction, as it were, meaning we have just had all of this quail and the people have been um, seeking for this flesh so much, now it says that they ate the flesh, and in verse 33, while the flesh was yet being between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people, 
and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. So this, is, this story was preserved to show that God can give an overabundance to meet our physical needs to the point that some of these people had 5,000 pounds worth of meat to consume, more than anybody could consume in months. And the point here is that when we lust for the things of this world, we miss the things of God. And this place is called Kibroth Hata'ava, which means the burial of lusts. So this story is preserved, and this place was named to remind all of us we have to bury our lusts so we can get the things of God. Otherwise, we will drown, we will be buried by our lusts, this overwhelming amount of these physical things that will keep us from God. So this really interesting and powerful story that's been preserved as a reminder. Let's bury our lusts. Beautiful. Love that concept. Now we go to chapter 12 and you get Miriam and Aaron, the older siblings of Moses, and they're complaining against Moses, saying, hey, you're taking too much on yourself. We, we're from the same family. We should have more, more power, more ruling, more leadership than, than we've been given. And Moses is not against other people prophesying. There's other passages where he says, uh, people come in and say, we got a couple people prophesying in camp. You got to stop them. And Moses says, I wish more people had direct access to God so they could speak his truth. But we have a leadership issue going on here where there are individuals who believe by force of relationship or something they've done in their lives that they are owed the opportunity or the privilege of being the leader, of speaking in behalf or in the name of God. And God's trying to establish that there is an order here. Everybody can have the Spirit. Everybody can receive revelation. But there's an order for who is declaring doctrine that will go forth to the entire group. Now, the, the fascinating part to me of chapter 12 in this story with Miriam and Aaron is that God doesn't ignore their, their struggle. He, he reasons with them, and he gives some pretty interesting um, descriptions of Moses. Look at verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses and unto Aaron and unto Miriam, Come out, ye three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation, and they three came out. And then the Lord's going to, to do this um, experience with Miriam and Aaron with their hands being leprous and other, other experiences to show this point. Look at verse 7 – or verse 6 – and he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. So he's saying, look, don't, don't belittle Moses. He's not a typical prophet. He stands at the head of that, that dispensation, and instead of giving him um, symbolic dreams and visions. Exactly. Like, this is interesting. Dark speeches, similitudes, it's actually riddles and parables. Now, God, we know, does speak with parables. That's how Jesus often teaches. What God is trying to make the distinction is 
I'm not giving Moses just a bunch of symbolic stories that people are going to have to noodle on for a long time to tease out. I mean, remember, Jesus' disciples did not always understand the parables. What God is seeing here is that Moses is a kind of prophet where we are going to speak in declarative statements that are unmistakably clear and no one can make a mistake. So think about the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, that is very clear. That is speaking mouth to mouth. Imagine had God set up some kind of riddle, and we're all still today debating like, well, did he really mean it's okay to kill or not? I can't tell because this riddle is so complex, I can't figure it out. And so God's trying to make it clear that he needs Moses to be the kind of prophet who will speak clearly on very specific things. So now you come to chapter 13, and if you look at the kind of the geography of what's going on, you have you have Egypt that they've been brought out, they've been in the wilderness a little bit, now they're coming up into the southern part. So here's Jerusalem today. So they're down here south of Canaan, south of what we call Israel today or the Holy Land. And Moses is commanded in chapter 13 to pick out one person from each of the tribes, each of the twelve tribes. Um, the, the tribe that's left out is Levi. They stay behind to take care of they're the tabernacle. The, they're the priests, but the other twelve tribes all have one representative that goes into the land to spy on the people and to see what they're going to need to do in order to take the land. And the ge geographic references essentially mention locations from the southern part of Israel, in fact, the word Negev means the south, the south, all the way up to the north into the areas of what might be today modern Lebanon. So this is a pretty big journey of like two, three, four hundred miles, depending on how far up you go. And it tells you that they're going to spend 40 days. There's that number again. Many days, these 12 men, one from each of the tribes, are going to go and be spying out the land. Now, the two names that we want to point out specifically are in verse 6 of the tribe of Judah, Caleb, and verse 8 of the tribe of Ephraim, Oshia. Those are the two. And by the way, we're going to change Oshia's name in verse 16 to Jehoshua. It's Yehoshua or Jehoshua is the root name for Joshua, which also happens to be, if you translate it from the Hebrew into the Aramaic at the time of Jesus, that's his name. That's the name of Jesus. It's Yeshua, or the longer form of the, the, the name, Yehoshua or Jehoshua. These names are great because Caleb means dog, but dogs are faithful. They're the faithful companion next to you. In fact, it might show up in the name of uh, Kolob that you have the star right next to the residence of God. So you have Caleb, the faithful one, and you have Joshua, the Savior. So these two spies, who are the good ones, are the faithful saviors. So we pick it up in verse 25, they returned from searching the land after 40 days. Now, as they return, what did they bring with them? Look up at verse 23, they came unto the brook of Eshcol and cut down from thence a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they bare it between two upon a staff, and they brought of the pomegranates and of the figs. So they, they come back into the camp of Israel, so they've done their spying for forty days or a long passage of time, and they come back into the camp of Israel, 
and they've got this this pole between a couple of them, and it's draped with the fruits of the land. In fact, if you go to Israel today, their their Department of Tourism, their logo, their symbol, is that. It's two people walking with a pole between them draped over with, with all of these fruits. So what we know about grape harvest today in Israel, in fact, I've participated in this, it, this is probably August or September where all the harvest is coming in, the most important parts of the harvest. So it's a time of joy and of gladness, and you have this massive bounty they bring in, and you would – it's interesting how the text sets us up. As readers, if we'd never heard the story before, they come down with all this enormous bounty, the immediate conclusion would be, wow, guys, time to move in. Yeah, in fact, they say – look at the very bottom of verse 26 – they showed them the fruit of the land, and then verse 27, and they told him and said, we came unto the land whither thou sentest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey, and this is the fruit of it. He's like, wow, Moses, you were right. This land is amazing. It's flowing with milk and honey, and you would think, great, everything's going to work out wonderfully. Look at the next word in verse 28, nevertheless. So these are the ten spies giving this what we've traditionally called the evil report. They're saying, yeah, look at all of this wonderful fruit. The land is amazing, nevertheless, which puts a greater emphasis on what's to come, what's, what's going to come next. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land, and the cities are walled, and very great, and moreover we saw the children of Anak there, and the Amalekites dwell there, and he keeps going on. And then Caleb jumps in, verse 30, because you can feel the tension in the, in the house of Israel, in the camp of Israel rising as they're hearing this, feeling like, you've deceived us, you, you promised all of these things and now there's no way we're going to be able to get it. Well, Caleb, in verse 30, stilled the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. This reminds me of Nephi, right? Laman and Lemuel are so freaked out by Laban. He's so powerful. And Nephi's like, let Let's us be go. strong like unto Moses. We can do this. We have God on our side. There is something that is important here. It's called limiting beliefs. What are the things that we all choose to believe that are actually false? What stories do we tell and share and preach that are actually false, that create false obstacles, or that cause us to forget that God creates everything? He has all power. So I work in a university, and often we spend our time trying to help students to dismantle the limiting beliefs in their own lives and also be in organizations to help those organizations not be constrained by limiting beliefs. And that's exactly what Caleb's doing. He's trying to remove the limiting beliefs that these, look, the evidence is there. This is the land of promise. And yet these guys, the, the bad reporters say, well, here's all the ways that this could go wrong. Sure, life is full of challenge and struggle. There are obstacles, but who's in charge? God. And if you remove God from the equation and start putting up all these walls of limiting beliefs, you're in trouble. So 
I encourage all of us to just do a little stock and take, take a, a register in our own brains, like what stories am I telling myself on a daily basis? They're just kind of running in the background when I'm not paying attention that aren't true. So it turns out our fallen nature brains are designed to tell ourselves all sorts of limiting beliefs. But when we turn to God and we document what we're telling ourselves that isn't true, and we list it all out and tell God, I'm going to repent. I'm not going to believe that anymore. And you literally burn that piece of paper and you said document what you know to be true and you put those narratives into your brain. That's what Caleb's trying to do here. Let's focus on what's true. And I would say in verse 30, to tie right in with what you're saying there, Taylor, is that last phrase, for we are well able to overcome it, I don't think what Caleb meant was you and me, us, we are well able to overcome it. I think what he meant was we, all of us combined with the Lord God of Israel, are well able to overcome it. Did, did you see what he did to the, to the Pharaoh and to the armies of Egypt in the Red Sea? Which were far more powerful than the people of Canaan. It's like they forget. Yeah, so, so he's, he's trying to, to encourage these people to decrease their, erase their limiting beliefs, but then look at verse 31. But the men that went up with him said, we are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we. And they may have been right. They are right if you remove God from the equation. Yes. There's no question that they're right, because these are people who have been in slavery for 400 years. They're not trained warriors. They're not they're not a well-oiled army machine. They're common slaves that have been working on, on Pharaoh's projects, not on fighting Pharaoh's wars. So now they're going to come into these walled cities, into this land with people who are armed and trained and veteran warriors, and they're saying, we're not able to do it. And you're right, you aren't able to do it. But if you connect in a covenant sort of a way with God and trust him, then combined, you are able to overcome. Which, by the way, um, in the uh, epistle to the Hebrews in the New Testament, whoever it was that wrote that epistle or whichever group of people put that particular epistle together, they refer back to this story in Numbers and talk about how they refused to enter into the Promised Land because of the opposition that they saw, because of the, the barriers that they saw between them and obtaining the land. And so it says this provoked the Lord and they were not allowed to enter in. And so we're going to see that playing out here in the rest of the story. And the story is for us. It God is wants for us. us to come into the promised land. Satan or others will tell us all sorts of other things, true or not, to keep us from trusting God and walking in. And we have to be not dissuaded by the obstacles that absolutely have to be there so we can grow and develop like God. God did not become God because he never struggled or suffered or never had to exercise faith. We want to become like God, and the only way to do it is through the atonement of Jesus Christ by overcoming obstacles that are necessary for our growth, progress, and strengthening. Isn't that, isn't that amazing, Taylor, when you take this story from chapter 13 and 14 and you say, yes, it's an event that took place thousands of years ago, thousands of miles away from most of us, 
But if you look at it through the symbolic lens, you can say, wow, there are layers upon layers upon layers of symbolic meaning and application that we can make to our lives today. So ultimately, maybe perhaps at the very deepest level of symbolism, we could say, oh, this is a nice little metaphor or a parable or a simile, if you will, for us trying to get into our promised land, which is ultimately returning to the presence of God in heaven. And is there opposition? Are there giants on the land? Are there walled cities? Are there difficulties? Are there trained people who are going to oppose us? Yes. Yes, yes, and yes on all of those levels. But the point is, if we, like Caleb and Joshua, trust in God, then we say we are well able to overcome it. We, we can get where we need to get through all of those oppositions. And some of you watching are thinking, that's, that's great for the, the big picture, the, the end-all, be-all solution, but I'm struggling with some things today that aren't focused maybe as much on the, on the eternal or the farthest down the road. So maybe you're struggling with something that you're trying to overcome or work with in your family relationships or with your health or with mental struggles or with abuse or with any number of combinations of, of struggles that you're facing, and I think if Joshua and Caleb were standing here in our place today, I think they would look at every one of you and they would try to steal the fear, calm down the anxiety, and say today, just like they did thousands of years ago, let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. And the we, of course, once again has to be with a capital W, because we have to include the Lord with us in that effort moving forward. Now chapter 14, you'll notice verse 1 starts with, all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And verse 2, all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto God, would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? They might get what they want. That's the problem. That's the point is agency matters and they're actually, this group of people are going to get exactly what they asked for. What if they had asked for, would to God that he would strengthen our feeble needs, knees? Would to God that he would help us to trust and have faith when we feel fearful or we're afraid? God would say, I get it. This is a very common human thing to feel that way then we may have had a very different story. We might have had a different outcome. So you'll notice they take it one step further. In verse 4, they said one to another, let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. And who's the captain? It's God. God is the captain. He is the Lord of hosts. He's the head of this military column, right, has a captain. It's him. And they're essentially saying, we don't want God anymore to lead us. It's interesting this phrase back in verse 2, the children of Israel murmured. Okay, we could just stop there and say they complained. We've all complained at times. But notice this interesting preposition, against, against Moses and against Aaron, who are God's chosen representatives. It wasn't just people were complaining like, oh man, uh, today's been a tough day. It's, oh man, I'm really angry at God or God's chosen leaders. 
So there's this against. And when they say, we want to make a captain, it means we no longer want God's chosen representatives to lead us. We know better. We're going to lead ourselves out. And, of course, they just lead themselves right into death. Which it's so easy to see the folly when reading the Scripture from the safety and, and the relative comfort and ease of the 21st century, looking back through time at these people and point this finger of scorn and say, how could you be so silly? And yet, how often today do people listen to words of God's chosen servants today, the prophets, and think, you're not delivering us into the Promised Land, you're deceiving us, you're taking us to a place where we're now going to be destroyed and I don't like it, and so we're going to appoint our own leader. We're not going to take the Lord's anointed leader or the Lord's chosen servants, we're going to pick our own leaders and we're going to go back to Egypt. Well, Egypt, if you go back there, that leads to servitude, slavery. So I love the fact that here Joshua and Caleb in verse 6 step forward again, and then they say in verse 8, if the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it us, give it us a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not." I love Joshua and Caleb, and you would think, wow, that speech should have worked, right? Wrong. Look at verse 10. But all the congregation bade stone them with stones. So they're about to get stoned, and God shows up the tabernacle. Verse 11, the Lord said unto Moses, how long will this people provoke me? How long will it be before they believe me, they trust me, that they're faithful to me for all the signs which I showed among them? Wait a second. I showed you guys so many signs of salvation in Egypt and out in the wilderness. What else do I need to do to convince you guys I'm on your side? I got your back. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the warrior, the divine warrior from heaven. I can fight all these battles. And it's interesting, I wonder if God would say that to us today. How many blessings do I need to give to you before you know that I love you, before you trust me that I got this, that I have a plan that works for you? Now, I confess, I have had some pretty tough moments in my life where I was less than faithful in my thinking, and I'm like, really, God, you have a plan? Because it doesn't seem like it. Now, I will say, decades after some serious tr struggles I went through, God has saved me, and he, the path has worked out. I realized, oh, he really does have a plan, but there were moments where I was like the Israelites and I chose to see the walled cities and I failed to continue to remember the many stories of salvation God had already given me in my life and had preserved in scriptures. I allowed myself to be consumed by limiting beliefs to a point that I found myself depressed and discouraged. And when I finally decided to trust God, and to say, I'm going to actually give God a chance again. When I started to believe him and to remember that he has saved people again and again, I started seeing his hand in my life everywhere, and eventually things worked out. That was very difficult, but I actually made the circumstances worse for myself because I chose to only focus on the, the obstacles that actually had been put there to help me learn to become more like God, and I wanted them to be obstacles of damnation.
Isn't it amazing that in the midst of this kind of difficult story with, with such terrible things going on, you get God's prophet who now kneels before the Lord and pleads their cause. Look at verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I beseech thee, the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy, and as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And the Lord reassures Moses, yes, I have pardoned. I love verse 20. I have pardoned according to thy word. There's no bargaining. There's no negotiation. Moses prays, lays out the case, reminds God – God doesn't need to be reminded of all of God's core characteristics, and God immediately is like, I pardon. I love this – I love this concept that God actually, according to your prayer, according to your petition, I'm going to – I'm going to pardon. Brothers and sisters, in my mind's eye, I can see the prophets and apostles in counsel together as well as in prayer in, in – at an individual level. I can visualize them pleading with heaven in behalf of us, you and me, that God would pour down blessings, that, that he would turn away wrath and that he would forgive our struggles and our weaknesses, and yet we live in a world that wants to keep trying to symbolically stone the prophets, stone the people who are giving a good report and who are shoring up our faith and our belief. What a difference it would make if we had more people in the church pleading with God on their behalf to bless the leaders of the church or the leaders of your stake or your ward rather than pointing out what you think is wrong with what they're doing. What, what a – God will let us use our agency and what an amazing opportunity it is for us to come together as, as an organization at a general church level as well as at local church levels to seek for God's help moving forward. Now, God promised them something here. In spite, he's not going to destroy them right now, but he said, verse 23, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. So in verse 25, now the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valley, tomorrow turn you and get you into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Thus begins our, our wandering that's going to take place over many years or possibly 40, 38 and a half or 39 years um, before they're eventually going to get brought into the Promised Land under Joshua's direction. Joshua and Caleb are the only two who are over 20 years old, right here in chapter 14, who are going to get to go into the Promised Land. All of the others are going to, to die out in the wilderness wandering. Yeah, verse 34 says, even the number of the days in which ye search for land, even 40 days, could be a long time, each day for a year shall ye bear your iniquities, even 40 years, that ye shall know my breach of promise. So God is ever the grand instructor trying to help us to learn whether we choose well or not. He's trying to turn it into a teaching moment. Now, there's a part of this story that often gets um, overlooked or even entirely skipped, and it's the end. 
of this chapter, and to me, it's possibly one of the most important parts of the entire narrative here as far as symbolic meaning, because what happens is they wake up the next morning after everybody's simmered down and they've been told, no, you're not going to get to go in, everybody's going to go back out in the wilderness and all of you adults, you're going to die in the next 40 years. They've slept on that and they've probably sat around the campfire talking about it and realized, you know, I'd rather not go back out in the wilderness, I'd rather take my chances here. And so the next day they, they come forward all dressed in, in battle gear saying, okay, we were wrong, we're now going to go in and we're going to take over the land. It's almost as if they're saying, we've decided that now we're going to follow the prophet. And Or do it on our own terms. Because it's interesting what Moses says. Moses in verse 41 and 42. 42, go not up, for the Lord is not among you. He was yesterday. That's what Caleb was trying to say, that ye be not spent before your enemies. If you think about the Book of Mormon, how often do the Nephites win in battle versus lose? The pattern always is, when you have the Lord with you, you win. No matter what's going on in life, if God's with you, you win. Emmanuel, God with us. If God is not with you, you lose. God was with them the day before, and they refused to be with God. So God's like, okay, well then, if you want to be with me, it'll be down in this area. But if you decide to go this way, I'm not there. And what happens? So they, they verse 44 tells you they presumed to go up unto the hilltop, but the Ark of the Covenant didn't go with them. It's staying with Moses and Aaron. Look at verse 45. Then the Amalekites came down, and the Canaanites which dwelled in that hill, and smote them, and discomfited them, even unto Hormah." You can picture this, oh, they're coming back into camp saying, we tried, and, and we lost a whole bunch of people in that battle, and we didn't get it, we, we, we didn't take the land. I think the message here is, for me at least, really clear. Follow God's current prophets with what they're currently saying, not yesterday's commands if it's different today, not, not last decade's prophets if our current prophets and apostles are saying something different than what we've heard in church history or in scriptural history, the power of having an oracle of the Lord on the earth or speak, pe people who can speak for the Lord is to know what God wants us to do today, and, and this closing part of this story for me is an example that timing matters, that we follow our current prophets and apostles, and we pray for them. They're praying for us, and we, we do our best to sustain and uphold what, they're at, what God is asking us to do through them. Important insight, because the day before, God had commanded, go up. That's what the prophet had taught. And the next day, the prophet is saying the exact opposite, do not go up. And so here the people are showing up a day late, working off of yesterday's commands and not paying attention to the present commands, and they get themselves killed. In our lives, are we willing to listen and heed the existing, the current call to covenantal faithfulness or are we going to make up our own gospel and say, nope, I'm only going to be faithful to these things that were said in the past, and I will then carve out my own little gospel, and I'll convince other people that's how they should live. 
and, and we'll set up our own leaders to lead us where we want to go rather than turning to the Lord saying, where would thou have us go? and how would you have us get there and be ready for some wilderness struggles on that path. This, this was not a, an amusement park ride for them to get to, this, to the beginning part of this uh, experience, and now they begin the 40 years wandering. You'll notice as you flip over some pages here, chapter 16, you get this story of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and 250 leaders who are I love the phrase that it uses for them, that they rose up before Moses, and these are men who are princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. <laughs> they're, using, they're using their high birth or their family wealth or their position as the means whereby to say, look, we're, we're taking over, They've gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and they're saying, you take too much upon you. We, we need more ruling. So it's, it's back to some of the similar things with, with Miriam and Aaron in that previous chapter, where now they're saying, we need to have more leadership. And it's not like Moses is retaining all leadership. How many times do we see him empowering other people, captains or elders of 70 elders? So Moses is not trying to hoard tyrannically leadership and power, and yet we have people who feel like they want to appoint themselves as leaders. So just these are just very common human, human challenges. So chapter 20, the people again complain they want water, right? They're in the desert. If, if you look at a map, this is one of the toughest deserts out in the world. There, there is water out there. So the people complain, and they test the Lord. They challenge him. They test the leadership of Moses. So the story actually gets named the waters of Meribah, and the Hebrew word there means the waters of testing. And what's interesting here is that God does provide this incredible miracle. He tells Aaron and Moses, yes, you can strike a rock and bring forth water. And we often miss these details. So what happens sometimes when we read the text is we think we know the story, we read quickly, we don't always pause to look at the details and how the words are constructed to try to convey meaning. So let's look at verse 10. Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear ye now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of the rocks? Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank, and their beasts also. So enough water for every living thing in the community. So God does this incredible miracle. Now, notice what happens next. Many of us miss this. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because ye believed me not, because you were not faithful to what I commanded, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given thee. If we're reading quickly and superficially, we might say, wait a second, the children complained, the children of Israel complained, they asked Moses and Aaron for help. Moses and Aaron went to God. God said, strike the rock, and they did. Why is God now punishing Moses and Aaron? There's a, just a really important word that shows up back in verse 10. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? Moses and Aaron are taking upon themselves as if they are the saviors, as if they are the ones providing salvation. They aren't giving the glory to God. They're not sanctifying God. 
God wants to save all of us, and he's not particularly happy when any one of us take the glory and honor of his work and we claim that it's ours. And this is the explanation for why even Moses and Aaron were also not allowed into the land of promise. When they had the opportunity to glorify God, they took upon themselves that the miraculous power that they used, they acted as if it came from them. So in our own lives, we have to always acknowledge that God is a source of all good, that anything good that we do in our lives, God has given us the power, the time, the resources, and strength to make it happen. And we shouldn't simply say, I'm so amazing, I did this all on my own. So this place is called Meribah, the waters of testing. And all of us have waters of Meribah in our lives. We will all be tested in a variety of ways. God wants to try us. He wants to see what we will do with the opportunities put in front of us. Now, chapter 21 is one of the most famous uh, parts of the Old Testament um, story storyline. This is the, the brazen serpent, the fiery flying serpent's chapter. Uh, you'll notice in verse 4 that as the people journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Isn't that interesting? They were much discouraged because of the way, and yet Jesus later on in John chapter 14, verse 6, is going to say, I am the way the truth and the life. No man cometh un- nobody cometh unto the Father but by me. I'm the way, and yet they've rejected him. And so now they're much discouraged because of the way that they chose instead. That is, that, that's a Book of Mormon concept. Wickedness never was happiness. It will always lead to discouragement. At the front end, it sure feels free, it sure feels fun and exciting and more liberating, but it never leads to long-term joy, peace, contentment, lasting relationships. And so verse 5, the people spake against God and against Moses. Here we go again. It's not just murmuring, it's murmuring against God and against Moses. Wherefore, have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. The manna. The manna that's been given. We, we are sick of this manna. We don't want what you have to give us anymore. We, w- we want something more substantial. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Now, we don't know exactly what kind of snake or serpent it was. Uh, one of the most common poisonous serpents in that region, region is called the carpet viper, and it turns out there are more snake deaths from the carpet viper every year in the world than anywhere else in the world. So it's a very, very poisonous snake. Now, again, we don't really know if it's that particular snake, but God is allowing the people to be challenged because they wanted to be on a different path. So he allows them to be challenged. And then what do they do? Verse 7, they're like, well, we have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against thee, praying to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Which, by the way, as a side note, isn't it amazing how when they're in this dire strait that that they recognize they're they're about to be destroyed, now they go to Moses and instead of complaining against him, they plead with him to plead with God. That's good. That's wonderful, and I'm I'm not making fun of that. I'm just saying what a difference it would have made if they hadn't just gone to Moses to ask him to go to God, but if they themselves had gone straight to the Lord as well as to the prophet. 
both ways. But we're going we're gonna to celebrate the baby steps in the right direction here. So God says to Moses, make thee a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent brass, put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived, which means some people chose not to look. Now, there have been times in my life I'm like, huh, that solution seems too easy, it doesn't make sense, I'm not going to pay attention to it. So there's a lot of lessons here. And this was a story that mattered a lot to the Book of Mormon people. Here's a couple of references. First Nephi chapter 17, verse 41. And he did straighten them in the wilderness with his rod, for they hardened their hearts, even as ye have. And the Lord straightened them because of their iniquity. He sent fiery flying serpents among them. And after they were bitten, he prepared a way that they might be healed. And the labor which they had to perform was to look. It's interesting he uses the word labor. Labor usually means hard effort. And because of the simpleness of the way or the easiness of it, there were many who perished. 2 Nephi 25, 20. And now, my brethren, I have spoken plainly that ye cannot err. And as the Lord God liveth that brought Israel up out of the land of Egypt and gave unto Moses power that he should heal the nations after they had been bitten by the poisonous servants, if they would cast their eyes unto the serpent, which he did raise up before them, and also gave him power that he should smite the rock and the water should come forth. Yea, behold, I say unto you that as these things are true, and as the Lord God liveth, there is none of the name given under heaven, save it be this Jesus of which I have spoken, whereby man can be saved. Let me just share one more. Alma 37, 46. O my son, do not let us be slothful because of the easiness of the way. For so it was with our fathers, for so it was prepared for them, that if they would look, they might live. Even so it is with us. The way is prepared, and if we will look, we may live forever. We do not need to complicate the gospel. It is just so simple. It is trust God and choose to be in an, an, and choose to be in an enduring relationship with him. Sure, there's lots of commandments. There's lots of stories and scriptures. Just boil it all down. God. His Son, Jesus Christ, is the way. We don't need to complicate things. And we have prophets today. They speak clearly so that all of us, if we listen to the words of the prophets, we can experience temporal and spiritual salvation. And I love all these, by the way, Taylor, these references in the Book of Mormon. It shows how, how aware all of these Book of Mormon prophets and writers were of this particular Old Testament story that they keep drawing upon to encourage and motivate their own people. Perhaps one of the, the longest discourses on this in, in the whole Book of Mormon, on this story, is given by Alma to a group of people, the Zoramites, who are struggling mightily, and if, if you want to dig in a little deeper, just study Alma 33, 19, through 23. It is, it is beautiful because he, he does what we're, what we're always trying to do whenever we go into the scriptures is understand the scriptures in their historical context and then apply them to our life and situation here. Alma does that better than almost anyone I've ever seen with this particular story in Alma 33, 19 through 23. So I want to focus on one little phrase in that bigger, block of text that Alma shares with those Ormites. 
He says, cast about your eyes and begin to believe in the Son of God, that he will come to redeem his people and that he shall suffer and die to atone for their sins and that he shall rise again from the dead, which shall bring to pass the resurrection, that all men shall stand before him to be judged at the last and judgment day according to their works. And he asks us to plant this like a seed in our heart that it can grow up and spring up unto, you know, everlasting life eventually at the end of chapter 32. So it's this idea that Taylor's talking about of we can't we can't stay stuck in, wow, I've got this problem and I've got to fix it. The reality is, is God's already provided a solution to all of our problems and it really is that simple. Look to God and live. Trust him and move forward and live. I do feel sad because I've known enough people who feel like it should be harder because if something is that significant, it should be harder. It's like, look, there's plenty of hard things in life. God is the easy path. We can be like the Israelites and go create our own paths and find ourselves really discouraged. Or we can say, God has allowed me to experience obstacles so I can grow, and if I always stay focused on him, if I make and keep my covenants to have his spirit with me, I can be empowered to see him and to live. So our last story for for this week's uh, episode is the, the famous story of Balaam and Balak and the talking donkey. Uh, to set the stage, Balaam is a prophet and he's not in the, the, the house of Israel, he's not with the group. It's interesting you say that because in Hebrew the word am means people and bala means not. So literally his name means he's not of the people, so he's not an Israelite prophet. And the text is just trying to make it clear that God is working with other nations and their prophets to declare truth. So Balak, who is a Moabite prince or a Moabite king, he's seen what Israel, the camp of Israel, has done with with some other neighboring kingdoms and other neighboring cities, and he's a little bit concerned because he's maybe a little smaller than some of the other Canaanite kingdoms, and so he's pleading with Balaam to come and curse Israel for him because he recognizes that there's some power with Balaam. So he sends princes with some gifts. Balaam says, well, let me go and ask the Lord. You can lodge here tonight. And in the next morning he comes and he says, uh, no, I'm not going to do it. God won't let me curse this people. So they go back and Balak sends even more important people with much bigger bounty of gifts to offer him. I know that some of us don't think the Bible should be humorous, but I look at this story and I, every time I read it, I just laugh a bit. It's just human folly that this guy thinks, if I spend enough money, I will convince a prophet and God to say bad things about God's people. And even Balaam eventually in the text just doesn't seem to understand God's will. And I, I, just, I just find some humor because I even see in my own life there are times that I just, I want to make something happen and I'm unwilling to really listen to God at times. So there's just a bit of humor here, I think, but ultimately the lesson is when God speaks, listen. Think about the Joseph Smith and Martin Harris, okay? How many times did Martin Harris keep upping the ante to get the, uh, the text of the Book of Mormon to share with his friends? And Joseph Smith finally says, okay, fine. And what happens? Joseph Smith loses the power to translate for a while. The 116 pages get lost. So I see kind of a similar thing going on in this story, like 
When God speaks, you don't need to say to him, I'm not sure you spoke properly, God. I expect you to say this. Would you repeat yourself and say it the way I want? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an interesting turning point in the story if you look at chapter 22, verse 19. When this group shows up again, yet again, with bigger uh, offering of gifts, more important people, rather than saying, hmm, I wonder if that size of gift for me is what God was waiting to happen before he says, okay, now I want you to go and curse the children of Israel, my people that I've delivered out of Egypt. It, it's a turning point because Balaam should have said, no, I, I've already got the answer and I'm not going to curse these people, but look what happens in verse 19. Now therefore I pray you, tarry ye also here this night, that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. So he's going to go and ask God again. And God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. Now there's an interesting three-word addition that the prophet Joseph Smith added to this verse that isn't in, in all of our footnotes. He adds the words, if thou wilt, in between the word up and the word and. So it reads, And God came unto Balaam at night and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up, if thou wilt, and go with them. It's not God giving him a command, I, I need you to go with them, it's if you choose to go, you can make that choice, which makes a whole lot more sense in verse 22. Well, actually, if you look at, but yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shall do, meaning I expect you to do what I told you to do just a few minutes ago. It's a little confusing the way it's worded here in English, but this phrase here, I expect you to do what I've already commanded you a few verses before. There you go. And in the morning, Balaam wakes up and he says, I'm going. So, I, I have sat through too many Sunday school lessons where people have debated whether donkeys can talk. And that is not the point of this lesson, so I just hope that we've never spent any precious Sunday school time debating talking animals. But I want us to think about what are the qualities of a donkey or a mule, okay? I think we can all agree that usually donkeys are slow, stubborn, they don't see very well, they don't listen, like all these things are about donkeys. Nobody ever wants to be called a donkey. I've never known anybody who felt like being called a donkey was a positive thing because they have all these negative qualities. Now, I don't want to disparage people who are donkey owners because actually they are quite capable work animals, but for the point of the story, look at what Balaam does. The donkey sees and hears God, okay? Who does not see God? Who does not hear God? Balaam. Balaam is so stubborn, he's so slow, he doesn't realize that God himself, the euphemism is the angel of the Lord, is standing in the path trying to help Balaam avoid doing something he shouldn't be doing. So the point of this question is, the point of this story is, who is the donkey? And it's Balaam. We shouldn't be like Balaam who was stubborn and slow to learn. That's why that's one of the main reasons this story is being preserved. And you, and you look at verse 22 when it, when it uh, kicks into high gear, 
with this phrase, and God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Side note, if we take a, a quick time out here, if you look at the Hebrew word for adversary against him, the Hebrew word that that came from is satan, which is borrowed over into the New Testament with the, the, the title Satan. The angel of the Lord is a satan. What is a satan? It's an adversary against somebody. It's, it's somebody who tries to prevent you from going where you're trying to go. To turn you out of the path. And in this case... And, and it worked. In this case, Balaam was not supposed to be on that path. God was actually purposely trying to turn him to a different path. And Balaam is so stubborn, he gets his foot crushed, trying to force himself on a path he shouldn't be on. And I was actually reading this again last night, kind of laughing, like, I, just this, the image of Balaam so stubbornly trying to press forward in the face of God, getting his foot crushed against the wall. And I wonder, do we ever do this to ourselves? Yeah, it's fascinating because, as Taylor pointed out, the donkey, he can both see and hear. So in verse 23, he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and he then responds. He leaves that way because he recognizes, I shouldn't be going here. That's when uh, Balaam begins smiting this, this poor animal, at which point, as Taylor pointed out, verse 25, he crushed Balaam's foot against the wall and he smote her again. So this is the second time he is – Balaam is so blind, he can't see the angel, he can't see the danger, and he's just upset at this donkey and he's smiting her, and then, verse 28, the Lord opened the mouth of the ass and she said unto Balaam, what have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? Now, some people read that verse and think, wow, that is – that has to be one of the most amazing miracles of the Old Testament, that this donkey turns and talks to Balaam. I suggest to you uh, – you, you've probably heard people talk about this before – that perhaps one of the miracles that's even more remarkable than the fact that the donkey talked to Balaam is the fact that Balaam he just talks back to the donkey as if he's talking to a servant or <laughs> or another person. The story just makes me Verse laugh. Verse 29, And Balaam said unto the ass, Behold, thou hast mocked me. I would there were a sword in mine hand, for now I would kill thee. He's not thinking very clearly because think of the money you could make with a talking donkey, but he's going to kill this donkey. It's, it's a funny story and yet it's a tragic story. And so the donkey talks back to them back to him and says, Am I not – am not I thine ass upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever wont to do so unto thee? And he said, Nay. As Taylor pointed out at the beginning, I think this story is here to demonstrate who is the real donkey in this story. And all of us are donkeys at times, all of us. All of us are stubborn, blind, and don't hear. And I love what happens here, verse uh, 20, 31. The Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. God will do that for all of us. God will work with us where we're at, and he will try to open our eyes and our ears so we can see his presence in our lives and see how he's opening pathways for us or trying to put obstacles in the way that should get us going somewhere else. And Balaam eventually figures this out, I and mean, he's not such a long-term donkey that he can't learn. So he has this donkey moment, but he, he realizes, okay, 
I'm really grateful that my donkey was humble enough to see the Lord, and I'm going to listen to the Lord. And it, it turns into the story of where he's been paid all this money to say negative things about the Israelites, and yet we get these incredible blessings that he prophesies to the Israelites in the upcoming verses and chapters. So to finish off the, the part of the story with the donkey, if you look at verse 32, it says, And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. Um, just as another side note here, that once again, the Hebrew word here in verse 32, I went out to withstand thee. Now it's in a verb form. The word there is satan. So it's not just a noun, it's also used as a verb. I was I came to withstand you, to satan you, to prevent you from progressing on this path that you've chosen. But because it was the wrong path. Because it was the wrong path. Um, which, by the way, incidentally, maybe that adds a little bit of at least a potential explanation for the experience down the road with Jesus in, in the Gospel of Matthew where he tells Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Mm -hmm. Maybe he's using this kind of a de definition where Peter's trying to stop Jesus from going down to Jerusalem to fulfill his, his divine purposes and he's acting in a role of a satan, somebody who is an adversary against me or somebody who's trying to withstand me from going where I need to go, rather than calling Peter, his chief apostle, the, the title of the, the <laughs> chief devil of hell. It, it, maybe, maybe there's something there in, uh, in understanding that story better based on what we know here. So the rest of the story, uh, as Taylor has already alluded, it, he's shown the house of Israel, Balak takes Balaam to different locations to see the size and the scope and the scale of, of this, this group, and he keeps blessing them and blessing them and blessing them, and it makes Balak very upset, and, and you can read the rest of He's these. He's not getting his money's worth. Yeah, this is not a return on his investment. <laughs> but isn't it fascinating that Balaam refused to curse them, but he, he reveals kind of the the Achilles heel, if you will, the, the way to if, – if you want to destroy them, I can't curse them, but if they're unrighteous and if they're unfaithful and if they turn away from worshiping their God, then they lose God's protection and that's the way to destroy them. And so what do you get? All the Moabites coming down and encouraging these Israelite men to participate in the idolatrous and adulterous practices of the Moabites uh, gods and goddesses and their, their idol worship. This, we actually have a couple of stories that are back-to-back. -back. You have the brazen serpent story where some people were so stubborn they were unwilling to see God's salvation and they died. And then you have the donkey story of Balaam where Balaam's a donkey. He's stubborn. He doesn't take orders. He doesn't listen. And therefore, he gets his foot crushed and other bad things were happening until he finally listened to God. And this is the point of the story, that people who choose to be stubborn, who choose to not be childlike, who choose not to listen, to not hear, to not try to see God in their lives, will find themselves turned out of the path that God wants them on, and they will lose all the blessings. They'll find themselves among the Moabites, doing the things of the Moabites. So these stories are actually, I believe, 
put together in this structure to lead us to understand that we shouldn't be donkeys, that instead we should be humble children of God, pliable, willing to listen, willing to take orders from God, and ultimately to be faithful to him so that we can receive everything he wants to offer us. Otherwise, as Balaam mentioned, they could get all this stuff, but if they want to turn out of the way and be donkeys, here's what the consequences are going to be. The same is true for us today. So as you move forward through this week, through this month, through the rest of this year, and through the rest of our life, uh, whether you, you find yourself in a part of your covenant path progression where you can clearly see the end goal, you can kind of see some of the blessings and the struggles that are, that are in your path down the road, or whether you're in one of those phases where you can't see anything, where you feel like your ears are dull of hearing and you can't hear anything, our invitation is regardless of where you are in between those two extreme scenarios, that you keep holding on to that rod, you keep looking to God and live because he has provided his only begotten son who was lifted up, raised up to be crucified for the sins of the world, and if we'll look to him, we don't need to perish in the way because he is the way, and we leave that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved.